Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. Okay, here is your forecast for Friday, June 23rd, and Saturday, June 24th. Friday, mostly in the clouds under mostly cloudy skies with a chance of morning rain showers. Afternoon rain showers are likely with a chance of afternoon thunderstorms. High in the upper 50s with winds southwest at 15 to 30 miles an hour increasing to 25 to 40 miles an hour with gusts up to 50 miles an hour. Higher gusts possible with thunderstorm activity. Friday night, in the clouds with rain showers, chance of evening thunderstorms. Lower 50s with winds west at 25 to 40 miles per hour with gusts up to 55 miles per hour. Saturday, in the clouds with rain showers, transitioning to rain, chance of thunderstorms in the morning, becoming likely by afternoon, again with high in the upper 50s with winds shifting southwest at 25 to 40 miles per hour, decreasing to 15 to 30 miles per hour. Higher gusts possible with thunderstorm activity. So another wet, crazy weekend. Uh, Just be safe out there. And um, good luck to all the runners racing the cog. And we'll see how the weather pans out for that event. And uh, have a good weekend.
No. Yeah. yeah. Two years. No. Two years. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. I got to do math. So it's like 20 <laughs> years. Another 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. We can do that, right? We can right? do it. We can definitely do it. <laughs> we'll be like, I'm back in my day. <laughs> Remember when we started this damn thing? We had the internet. Now we have robots to help us. So. All right, That's a scary well, thought. That is a scary thought. But um, <laughs> anyway, so just uh, for the listeners, a little bit of housekeeping stuff for us. Um, we are we're taking a two-week Break. So we are going to be dropping this show on June 23rd, and then we are um, not having a show on the 30th, and then not having a show on the 7th. So we're going to take the 4th of July sort of period off, and then we'll be back on the 14th. Stop unless... Unless you decide randomly that you and Mrs. Stomp want to do a show or if you want to get Steve from Reckless on or if you want to get crazy some night, whatever you want to do. If you want to drop a surprise, I could. You know, I was actually thinking of uh, maybe recording the um, Race the Cog event. Yeah. Um, Just like all the music and all the dialogue. And I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. There's a couple ideas. When is Race the Cog? That is tomorrow for listeners. Saturday. It's this Saturday. Oh, wow. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Well, I'm going to be out of town, unfortunately. I would love to do that race. Oh, my God. It's the coolest. In case no, anybody doesn't know about this, you literally, there's three races. They start at 8, 840 or so, and then a third one for the slower folks. They start right with the cog, and they literally race the cog up the mountain. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's so. another crazy weather weekend, though, unfortunately. Yeah. Storms, the whole thing. Yeah, we'll talk about the weather uh, from last weekend for sure. But uh, yeah, I'm just hoping, like, I'm going to be out of town for a little while. And then I'm just hoping I can get back to hiking. This foot thing has really screwed me oh, up. Yeah. My, my sister-in-law wants to do the presidential traverse. She actually wants to go after, I probably shouldn't announce this, but I will. She wants to go after the fastest known time that was established by the mixed gender group. So me and her may, may give it a shot at the FKT. Okay. Wow. So what's going on with the toe? The toe, like I don't know, stop. Uh, I think better? I probably should have gone to a doctor. It's just, uh, it's it's be- much better now. I can put pressure on it and everything, but like it just hurts when I put a sneaker on and I run. Yeah, it's just, it's just like it's not a sharp pain anymore. It's just an annoying pain. So I feel like I'm gonna be out of town for a little while. I'm gonna relax. I'm gonna rest it, and then I'm gonna come back stronger and better gain all that weight back <laughs> oh my god oh my god well we'll see we'll see speaking of that oh, i'm boy. cracking a beer all right yeah i got cracking one too. a beer all right so uh show intro i didn't actually write anything down here stomp so i'm gonna wing this show intro intro but uh yeah. welcome to episode 111 of the sounds like a search and rescue podcast this week we are joined by um our special guest Alan Arnett. Alan is a climbing coach, a keynote speaker, a well-known mountaineer, and an Alzheimer's advocate. So uh, he is one of the main guys that people go to to get the get the read on what's going on in the Mount Everest climbing season. He's got a lot of good stories that he's going to share with us. Um, he's very passionate about um, fundraising and supporting research for Alzheimer's, so we'll talk about that. He's going to give us his perspective on 
the difference between the Colorado 14,000 footers and the New Hampshire 4,000 footers. So he's got a little, a fun little perspective on that. So um, all this, plus we are going to be recapping Stomp's triumphant Mount Washington road race performance. Uh, so we're proud of him for that. And then uh, we've got some recent search and rescue news that we're going to cover. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Let's get started. All right, Stomp. So what do we got here first? Alzheimer's. Um, oh, yeah. Do you sponsor? Yeah, this is a really neat show. We talk quite a bit about uh, the Alzheimer's Association mm-hmm. and uh, all the efforts. And can't wait for you guys to hear this interview with Alan. It's amazing. It's great stuff. So hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Hike one of New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own adventure. Consider joining us this summer or during the fall foliage season. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. Our hope is that one day, Alzheimer's will be nothing but a memory. Learn more at alts.org right slash 48 peaks. That's A-L-Z dot O-R-G 48, the number 48 peaks. Excellent stomp. So uh, we got some feedback from listeners around uh, our, our quick discussion around dehydrated <laughs> meals versus uh, real food. Yeah, and back. Real food. Matter of fact, I went to REI with my nephew. Um, I gave him the trail name Hawaiian Punch. So we were like, he's, he's a Boy Scout. So we're getting, you know, I was giving him the rundown and some of the gear that he needs. But we were looking at these dehydrated meals in a bag. And my wife was kind of like, oh, this, this looks good. It was like, you know, some fancy meal or whatever. It's like, I don't really like them that much, but you said at least one listener came, came over with an update to you. Yeah. Did you see this company, Pinnacle Foods? Does that ring a bell? It doesn't ring a bell to me. I'm going to take a look at it right now. Okay. Yeah. So Christopher Haley, who's a listener, uh, informed us that he's tired, tired of the meals as well, but he's had some luck with Pinnacle Foods and apparently they make a really good product and his favorite, his personal favorite, would be the penny with sausage or penne and uh, Tuscan chicken. So yeah, check them out. Maybe they're uh, pretty good. Yeah, I'll throw a link in the show notes here. It looks like, um, yeah, they've got Thai peanut curry with roasted veggies and noodles, um, jalapeno jalapeno cheddar biscuits and herb sausage gravy, and then they got sticky sticky teriyaki chicken with garlic, asparagus, and coconut rice. If you're sharing a tent after eating that, someone's not going to be happy with you, but uh, looks like good stuff. I'll check them out. Mm, absolutely. So thanks for uh, letting us know about that. Yeah, I'm probably still going to stick with my like um, Chef Boyardee spaghetti and meatballs routine for the weekend trips. Yeah, can't go wrong. Yeah. All right, Stomp. So the other thing you put this on here, and I've been, I, I've actually been fascinated by this over the last three days or four days, but the missing sub, submarine. So there's a, um, there's a commercial sub called the Titan that um, goes down and basically takes tourists to visit the wreckage of the Titanic. And the sub, my understanding is, is that this sub is built using carbon fiber technology. And then Mm -hmm. on either end, it's enclosed with metal caps. And uh, I think most people that are paying attention to this sort of understand it's like really a stripped down submarine. So it's like, there's no seats in it. You're sitting crisscross on the floor. There's one window that you can look out at the front small bathroom it's controlled by a a joystick gaming device and a couple of touchscreen 
um, TVs. And, and unfortunately, uh, there's been, you know, there was some hope that they may have still been alive, but they lost contact after about two hours. And then um, there's been no contact or no sign. And then late, earlier today, late breaking news, they did find that uh, there was debris from the submarine. So mm. sounds like a, a, a instantaneous death with a, a catastrophic implosion, I guess, right? Yeah, that's what they're saying. That's absolutely horrible. Um, yeah, so horrible, it, but not not as bad as the alternative, which would be what just suffocating, suffocating, sitting in there with five sure, people. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I can imagine this going pretty quick. I mean, you're dealing with pressures that are just extraordinary down there, so it probably happen without them perhaps even knowing. Mm-hmm. Let's just hope. But yeah, so that's the, it's been confirmed. It was an implosion and it's interesting. I mean, there was a whistleblower back in 2018 that said this was a problem in these uh, vehicles. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. There's so many headlines about just that machine not being fit for purpose, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah. And I sort of took everything with a grain of salt, Um, listening to those comments and stuff. I I was pretty shocking when I saw that, like, there was a news article, there was a news, like, video of of the CEO actually giving a tour of the submarine and sort of show, and it was pretty shocking that they were going to squeeze five people in there. But mm-hmm. what really set, set the tone for me was that James Cameron actually came out and made some comments. Really? And this is the, he's the director of um, Avatar and Titanic. And he's been, he's actually been down in the Mariana trench in, um, I it's forget what they call that. Portugal, right? Or Spain? Uh, no, it's off of like um, the, the, Japan, I think, is the deepest part. It's like 36,000 feet deep. And um, he's been down there solo. So he, this guy is probably one of the most experienced, deep, submersible people in the world. And he had said that like within that industry, which I'm assuming is a small fraternity of people, like they were really concerned about the practices of this organization. So, And they were really concerned about the reliability of that particular sub because I think that that particular sub had actually gone down for three seasons. And my understanding is, is that the, you know, you don't expose these, these submersibles frequently to that amount of pressure without, um, you know, without some damage. So it could be that over time it just wore down or who knows. There was some, there was another report that said like they were descending too quickly. (laughs) They was trying to release some ballast and that maybe that, that caused an, an issue. So who knows? Wow. Yeah. Would it, what would it take to get you to go? If you were like an unlimited rich billionaire, would you would you sign up for that? I would never do it. I would never do it. It, was, it, it. it has so many parallels to what we talk about with Alan coming up. Like, you know, it's like, what's the kind of person that would do this kind of thing? Um, I mean, if you think about it, they're very similar adventures, you know, climbing Mount Everest or going two miles under the water. They're very similar. Like what drives a person to do that? I would never do it. No, I just, it's that assumption of risk that I'm not willing to take. Um, Yeah, I'm a little too claustrophobic too. And I think that these like, these slow, slowly developing claustrophobic rescue stories, like we've seen these mm -hmm. with like the Chilean miner story and the, the, the kids in the Thailand cave and like the kids that get stuck in wells, like, and then the people that get, you know, saved from earthquakes, they've been stuck in buildings. Like those are like my... That is my worst fear of mm-hmm. uh, anything to do with claustrophobic stuff. It's like, I, I won't go near it. Just waiting. Yeah. Just waiting and waiting and waiting. It's terrible. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's why when it, when the news broke that they found the debris field, I was like, you know what? If they went instantaneously, that's a lot better than the alternative, which would have been five people stuck in that can for five days five waiting days. for their oxygen to, to run out. So that would be, to me, the most ultimate horror. Right, yeah. So in yeah. a sense, it may be a blessing. Because, I mean, yeah. how would they, even if they found it, how would they get it out? There's no way to get it out. I don't think they'd be no way to get it out. Yeah. There's no uh, situation that they've experienced where they've had to rescue one of these things. Yeah. I mean, it's a good question. Um, and I think stomp even as good of friends as we are, if we were stuck in a tin can like that for five days, like I would just lose my ever living mind. Like it would be over. (laughs) He started hammering on the glass window. Oh my God. I would be like, (laughs) just somebody punch a hole in this thing so we can just get it over with. Oh my goodness. Well, anyway. rest in peace. All right. Well, let's talk about your, this is your moment, Stomp. So Stomp successfully <laughs> completed the Mount Washington road race in inclement weather, unprecedented rainfall, cold conditions. I sat on my butt at the start line and did nothing. This guy was out there grinding. Tracy made it up there too. So we're proud of everybody. Yeah. Um, but can you sort of give a recap stomp? Give us everything. Yeah. Well, I think you got to start a few days early. Uh, we had this continual buildup uh, on the precipitation range and it ended up topping out at about a, a forecast of an inch and a half for surrounding cities, um, Bartlett and Gorham. And, um, that was making me pretty nervous. And then of course the Mount Washington forecast came out calling for the same. And, um, you know, thankfully it did, um, ease up a little bit at the race start time. Um, it stopped raining a little bit and seemed to brighten up a bit, but, um, above the four mile mark, it was a whole different world. It was, you know, high gusty winds and heavy rain. And, um, a lot of runners actually got hypothermia up there, mild to moderate hypothermia, which is pretty wild. So, but that's a whole other story. Um, yeah, I came in around two hours and 24 minutes. I think my best is one five Oh, and then, um, Tracy came in around one. What was her time? I wrote it. Oh, oh sorry. Two, two hours and nine minutes. So Tracy Morgan, uh, AKA little squirt, but, um, it was intense. It was harder than I remembered, Mike. I mean, I trained as hard as I could on the, the steepest hills I could find. And it just out the window. It's like, it didn't help yeah. at all. It was just so damn hard. I, yeah. I oscillated between running and, um, power hiking or, or speed walking every say hundred yards or so. But about, I think it was right around four and a half, five miles. I started getting that really subtle spasm. And if you remember when we were hanging at the bottom, I was stretching my IT band on my left yes. thigh. That that's what killed me I, at around five miles or so. It started to tweak on me and just go into mild spasm. So I, I made the the decision to stop jogging altogether and just power walk. And it was a good call because I, you know, I think I would have maybe saved a little bit of time running, but I just didn't want to get frozen, locked up with a a cramp. So that was weird, man. And I was so disappointed because at that time I felt warmed up. I had my breath and I'm like, damn it, I can run more, but I just didn't want to take the chance. 
So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You're but, very like zen at the start. Like I, I, I was never. I'm not. I'm not a warm up guy. I'm like a. I'll warm up as the race begins. So yeah. I'm not somebody that goes out and jogs or moves around too much. I'm like I'll stretch a little bit, but I'm usually just pretty stationary. Sure. You're like on the move. Like you, you must I have put to. in like two miles before you even started the race. Yeah, it was very strategic though. I started with just a, a mild walk, and then I would you know, run up a hundred yards and then walk back down. I was very strategic about it. And then when it was maybe yeah. 10 minutes to the start time, then I started running up the lower portion of the start. Um, but yeah, I have to, I just, as I get older, I really need that extra warm up time. Um, yeah. uh, but that didn't help either because once you start running, man, Oh, that hill kills you. Woo. Yeah. yeah. Well, it you is, made it. It's interesting too. So they don't have water stops. So you got to carry your own, um, yeah, they had one at water, the halfway which, point. Yeah, yeah. So, well, they have water there, but like yeah. you, you have to have your own container and all that stuff. But correct. Um, yeah, and it was raining. There was a before we get into like sort of the finish, and yeah, I wasn't up there, so I don't know. But I will say that I got some good video of the start and. Mm-hmm. They moved the start line, which I think is fine. It's I over am. off to the side. It's out of the way. It's okay. Um, I thought that the 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 lady who sang it was she's the lead singer of Reckless, which is a band, not not our Reckless Brewing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're affiliated or not, but she did an awesome job with the national anthem. Fantastic. And then the gentleman who carries the flag and runs with the flag up up every year, he was sort of in the middle of the pack of runners. So there was 1,200 runners. He was standing like in between, like in the middle of like, he was seated at like 600. And when um, Reckless sang the national anthem, everybody turned to face the guy that's carrying the flag. He's probably on like a four foot pole Intense. with the flag and I I have some video when I got some pictures of it and yeah. it is such a cool it was such a cool moment it was like and I feel like like as a country we've sort of lost that sense of patriotism and maybe sure. it's just because I pay attention to like a lot of the political nonsense that goes on and it seems like we're more pol- polarized than ever but mm. that moment to me was one of the best moments I can remember like I haven't felt since that moment of sort of patriotism since maybe like the 20 well the 2013 re- start at the Mount Washington Washington road race after the Boston mm. bombings. Oh, sure. Like it was just a great moment. I was, I was pumped after that. And I, I was, I'm a, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I was looking at it from afar well, and it was awesome. From my vantage with Tracy, I did find Tracy and we were, we were behind. We were like the last third of the, the roster, the lineup. Yeah. And, um, all the people were just looking at him, surrounding yeah. him and looking at him. And from where we were, we were maybe a hundred yards away. And it was just, her voice was reverberating through the mountains. Awesome. It was yeah. really a stunning, beautiful moment. Absolutely yeah, yeah. stunning. I posted that video as a story, but I'm going to post it as a reel too, just so we have it on our Instagram. Cause it was really an amazing moment. Pretty so. special. Absolutely. Yeah. Very special time. Yeah, and there was one other um, photograph that came out of the race at the very end. There's an 82-year-old guy. I think he's run the race 41 years in a row. He's got some relationship with a young man who actually helped him uh, towards the finish, basically. like It's a photo of them like coming out of the fog, and the young man is just the old man is leaning against the younger man, and they're making their way to the finish line. It was an absolutely, it's an eerie but stunning photograph. Beautiful. Yeah. Just helping them along the way. Yeah. That photographer does a fantastic job, but I got to say, I mean, 
it was pretty much maybe you could see 30 feet ahead of you. That's how thick the fog was. Um, it was a northerly wind. So when you hit the dirt, the former dirt section, and then the cow pasture, we were just getting blasted by wind. Um, and it was really ghostly. I mean, the, the, the race did a great job. They had cars probably every, I, w- I want to say every quarter mile. And every now and then you just see a couple headlights of a car. You barely see the car and the person in it. You could just see the headlights. That's how thick it was um, as we made our way up. And um, boy, what a great time. I got to say, though, it was crowded up top because everybody was getting out of that rain trying to shelter. And I have to say there were a lot of hikers that were up there as well trying to support the people. So logistically, it seemed like maybe I don't want to say they were overwhelmed up there, but some description like that may be appropriate. I think they were a little, I don't know, underprepared for the crowds at the top. It was interesting. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, when you have no visibility, yeah, everything yeah. changes. You know, what you can handle with visibility becomes difficult when you don't have it. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. but, you know, they've been doing this race for a lot of years and, you know, Yo, sure. there's some years that are more difficult than others. Like I remember running it when it was super hot and there was a lot of people that I think were dehydrated. So it's, yeah, I don't know. It's pick. a tough one. I mean, yeah, it's. Re- I think this one was like right on the fence, like in terms yeah. of whether they should have halved it. And I can see that being a difficult decision to make, but otherwise, I felt safe. I, you know, I knew that there was help around everywhere. Um, if I got into trouble, so um, hats off to the whole organization for pulling it off. But boy, was it tough up there, Mike. I'm, you know, when when I came through the finish line, I went straight to the summit cone. I got my picture there. I looked like Quasimodo because I had my ultralight pack on and the blue blanket <laughs> yeah. they gave me. <laughs> and I then love that blanket. And then, then as I was walking down with my uh, my mom, I found her. We were walking back down to the car eventually after changing into dry clothes. The wind chill was hitting my face, and it was burning. It was stunningly cold up there unbelievably oh, yeah. cold yeah the second you start moving yeah your, your temperature your core temperature is going to drop precipitously so you've got to you really got to like get dressed and get out of those wet clothes yeah great stuff yeah. though great time i i'm i'm revved up to do it again i'm going to keep on training i've been running still you know it's, i'm sort of back to my regular routine uh, adding weights back in and things i really enjoy but i'll do it again i was psyched yeah, I was crushed when you guys left. I was like, oh, "Damn, I really wish I could have done this." But I know. we'll see. We'll yeah. see. I'm gonna. I'm keep. I'm, I'm icing, and we'll see how it goes. But oh, you'll be um, fine. Moving on, stop. We got some sponsors here. Yeah, CS Coffee, CS Instant Coffee. Your one coffee solution anywhere, anytime. Search CS Instant Coffee and do it now. In prep for this backpacking season, and then also we want to. Sp- Give a shout out to Seek the Peak, which is also associated with the Mount Washington Observatory. So Seek the Peak returns this summer with the classic Mount Washington Hikeathon. This annual gathering of New Hampshire's hiking community is a nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory's largest annual fundraiser. Hikers raise funds, earn gear, and celebrate at our Apres hike party on Saturday, July 15th, with live music, food trucks, epic gear raffle, beer garden vendors, and people who care deeply about the trails and an inclusive hiking community. It all takes place at the base of the Mount Washington Auto Road. Our hike and make friends option supports all ability levels, pairing hikers with similar goals for a trek that's right for you. All hikers are welcome to help raise funds for the Observatory's Summit Weather Station and services like the 
twice a day higher summits forecast, educational programs, and research in the White Mountains. Seek the Peak is sponsored by the Great Glen Trails and Eastern Mountain Sports. Learn more and register to hike at seekthepeak.org. Good sponsor, Stomp. Yeah. Oh, boy, we have a coffee donation, I think, here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Christopher Walken, uh, parentheses, a.k.a. Paquette, uh, three coffees. Oh, did we do this one before? I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to remember. I feel like that name sounds familiar, Christopher Walken. I think we did do that last week. I might not have erased it from my roster, but hey, we'll do it again just for the hell of it. Thank so, you, Christopher. Yeah, thanks again, Christopher. We have uh, three coffee donations, and that was 15 bucks for each to Cora. Yeah, okay. I just didn't okay. erase it from my notes. You know, you uh, should, um, when you do the coffee donations, you should get like a, um, like Pink Floyd, like money drop, like as the, as the audio drop behind it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, that'd be awesome. I just thought of that. So anyway, producing, (laughs) adding producing elements to the show. And then we'll Um, get sued by Roger Waters and all these other people. Well, I feel like that, that, um. I mean, that like that cha-ching sound has got to be ubiquitous. Like Probably. You, it's got to be. Anyway, you can find something for you, I'm sure. Yeah, I'll look yeah. into it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just make something. You can produce it yourself. So, so um, yeah. So the beer talk is back. It's the, the triumphant return. The beer talk is return. back. I'm crushing a beer. Yeah, thank God, huh? Feels good. Yeah. I never stopped. <laughs> yeah. I kind of like, I mean, I fell off the way. I did the, I had a beer at Reckless, so I can't complain. Uh, uh, but what are you drinking? I have an old, oldie but a goodie here. It's the Wizard Double IPA. It's complicated to be a wizard. You've seen that one before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, there you are up there. Uh, and I think it's Burlington Beer again. Yeah, Burlington Beer Company. And it's, uh, let's see, 8%. Very tasty. I like the doubles. Do you have anything good there? I I have like the the last beer that I drank I think on the show and it's been sitting in my fridge so this is Lord Hobo okay six one seven hazy IPA so it's a you know six one seven Boston area yeah okay so, it's good it's good stuff yeah it's sure. not bad it's in like the old school twelve ounce can so yeah not bad yeah well I'll be drinking rum runner soon enough in the oh, Caribbean stomp that's gonna be awesome <laughs> that'd be nice because we have a week yeah. we have like literally 10 days of rain coming so oh, you're right timing it just right great um, perfect hopefully my basement isn't flooded when I get home <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. boy so we apologize for the last few weeks we haven't done the notables um I don't have any hikes. I, I will get back to it, uh, but the Mount Washington thing, now that that's over, I'll get back to it for sure. But uh, notable hikes, if you tag Slasher on your adventure, you could be considered for Slasher's Hike of the Week. So here we go. Zoe Mahoney, up Cabot for Mom's 44th. Uh, hit the cabin register and plug Slasher. That's pretty cool. Reckless Steven hiked up Wombeck to Middle Weeks and uh, oddly found some duct tape slippers. <laughs> oh boy, I'm not sure what's going on with that. Uh, Pat Lorch, who's um, a listener who's associated with some search and rescue groups out west, I believe, uh, posted a picture and tagged us uh, as completing Singing Gate, which is a nice location out there. Brady Girl 1 uh, hit Wombeck for June. Um, I'm guessing that's part of the grid. Chelsea hikes New Hampshire, East Osceola to Osceola. Uh, 
via Greeley to finish the 48 at sunrise. Earlier hike, but cool. Then we have Mountain Ginger. Look at all these people doing this stuff. Are you getting jealous or what, Mike? Oh, yeah, it sucks. Oh, my God. Um, so check this out. Mountain Ginger hit Baxter to hike Mount Co, C-O-E, South and North Brother. Rhonda Willett did bonds for 38 to 41 for spring in 14 awesome. and a half hours. That's not a bad time for that. And no, not at all. Yeah, and then day two, South Twin and Gale head for 42 and 43. Uh, Nick hikes and plays guitar, did Mount Crawford and Stairs Mountain. Justin Benz, Dad Venture. We met these folks at... Um, yeah, Justin, at, hello. Yeah, hello, guys. Uh, they tackled Willie for 21 out of 48. Uh, a couple more left here. Wow. Reckless Steve and Joni Marie Hikes did a weekend backpack on the Vermont Long Trail. And Steve, we missed you. You were, every time we're at Reckless, you're doing, off doing something. So I can't believe that he picked that mud fest over <laughs> hanging out with us. That's ridiculous. I thought he went somewhere good. <laughs> yeah, he missed all the DJing and drinking and all kinds of fun stuff. So anyway. Uh, run, cast, run, hiking with students for the J term. And they tackled Cardigan and Lonesome Lake. That's nice. awesome. Pat Lorch again, Morris Peak off the PCT. Full strength coffee, South Middle and North Moat post Father's Day hike. Um, let's see, Sharpen the Sword, Bulgin Horn. That's a great area. Uh, yep. That's one spot that we're hoping to get to, Mrs. Stomp and I, uh, Unknown Pond just north of that and then two more here steve summits single day prezi this is actually really cool mike a single day prezi at eight hours and 43 minutes and apparently comparing to last year he shaved off several hours uh for time so that's really impressive so nice job steve and um let's see danielle half dome at yosemite nick hikes and plays guitar again mount pemi and then last but not least a Folsom tackled Wildcat and Wildcat D. So we're all caught up. Thanks for tagging us. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I saw that half dome. I was looking at Danielle's half dome pictures because I'm going out there in September. So I got I to send her a message and get, get the details on which direction she went. Yeah, get the details. I was thinking that too. Besides up. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's all that we have. Um, so at this point, I think we're moving on to our first segment, right? That's right. Let's let's move into it. We're going to talk with Alan Arnett, so we'll we'll drop off now and catch you on the other side of the segment. All right. Here we go. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, 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 very cool. Great. Well, Alan, um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. No problem. So let me do a quick <laughs> introduction of you and then I'll let you introduce yourself. Hopefully I'll do you justice here. But uh, for the audience, we've, we're joined by Alan Arnett. Alan is a... Um, uh, a climbing coach, keynote speaker, mountaineer, Alzheimer's advocate, um, host a, a podcast, great YouTube channel, uh, a blog where he talks about um, a lot of topics around mountaineering. Uh, he's a frequent guest on various shows related to climbing, and he's climbed all over the world, completed the seven summits. He's had frequent trips to the Himalaya region. 
high peaks in Europe, South America, North America, Antarctica, Africa. Um, he's completed the Colorado 14ers list and um, summited Mount Everest in 2011. And he is the oldest American to summit K2, which he did uh, when he was 58 on his birthday in July of 2014. So, Alan, I'm exhausted just doing that introduction. I was going to say, my back did not hurt before that introduction. Now I've got this pain in my lower back. I know, seriously. you got quite the resume there. But uh, why don't you, um, hopefully I did you justice, but why don't you introduce yourself? Well, thank you for having me, first off. You know, I always say that mountaineering is, is one of those sports that when you do your first trip, you either love it or you hate it. And if you hate it, you're never going to do it again. If you love it, it's this expensive addiction for which there is no cure other than more climbing. And I fell yeah. into the latter part. You know, my first climb was on Mont Blanc. My first real climb was in Mont Blanc in, uh, on, the, on the French side. Then I went to Everest Base Camp. And the, literally the rest is history. I started doing a major climb every year thereafter um, up until a few a couple of years ago, uh, coincident with COVID. But I've done maybe 38 major climbs around the world. And Mike, you did a great job of covering them all. You know, let me just say from the outset, um, I am incredibly grateful that I've had the opportunities to do what I've done. Um, I climb for a very specific reason, and that is to raise money to, for Alzheimer's research and to raise awareness around that disease. My mother, Ida, um, she, uh, she passed from the disease in 2009. And as I say, uh, it, it took her life, but it changed my life forever. I was very, very lucky uh, to kind of wrap up this intro that it's very lucky to be born in Memphis, Tennessee to a middle, you know, uh, middle family and, uh, and you know, middle income family with my brother, Ken, and, um, you know, went to the University of Memphis, got a degree in electrical engineering, uh, went on to work for Hewlett Packard for 30 years and took early retirement to oversee the care of my mom. Um, but I started off my, uh, you know, my years as really being focused on work, and then I shifted it over to being focused on climbing. And now I call myself an Allen 3.0, where I'm really focused on trying to give back through uh, different endeavors that I have going right now. Yeah, that is, that's great. And I think I want to get into a lot of the mountaineering topics here, but I think the first thing is we're a, we're a show that focuses on uh, a lot of local topics here in New Hampshire. So we have a bit of an f- inferiority complex when it comes to sort of our 4,000-footer list compared to the Colorado 14,000-footer. Can you talk a little bit? I don't know how familiar you are with the New Hampshire region at all, uh, but can you talk a little bit about like your perspective on uh, the 14,000-footer list in, in Colorado? Is it you know, we always look at that list and we say, well, yeah, it's it's tough. You got elevation and you've got that that risk. But there's also a lot of switchbacks where in New Hampshire, our little mountains go straight up. So do you have any sense of like, is it is it really true that the 14,000 footers are more difficult than the 4,000 footers? Or do you have any perspective on that? OK, I'm going to I'm going to preempt this discussion with a simple statement that a few years ago, I climbed Mount Washington in December and it kicked my butt. Okay. So this was after summiting Everest and K2 and Denali or the seven summits and others. I went with a a good friend out of New Hampshire uh, that had summited it 200 times and we got lost in a snowstorm. Uh, Those giant Karens that you think were made by, you know, giants from another planet proved to be our saving grace. We actually got lost. We literally, literally almost ran into one of the houses on the summit. I, I, I promise you, I almost ran into it with my nose because I couldn't see it. It was that type of a whiteout. 
And so I turned around. We turned around. We ended up going back down, straight down the fall line to find the tree line. Took a left and went back down. Was it Riverman, Riverman's uh, Gulch, a ravine? Uh, Tuckerman's. Tuckerman's Tuckerman, Tuckerman, yes, thank you. Yep. So my Colorado 14ers, I love them to death. This is my training ground. I've climbed them in with repeats over 225 times. I've summited all of them. My favorite is um, the two of them, Capitol Peak and Longs Peak. Longs Peak is um, in 14-2 in that neighborhood. I've summited it maybe 45 times, climbed on it over 200 times. Um, you know, you can't you, you can't beat. You're absolutely right. The trailhead started around 9,000 feet, and there's a lot of switchbacks, but it depends upon the route that you take. Uh, just like on any mountain, you can take the standard route or you can make up your own and, you know, get lost and almost die and lots of good things. Um, you know, I've had lots of incidences here in, in Colorado, like uh, getting blown over by a wind gust and breaking my leg in three places on an 11,000 foot mountain. So for me, it's not the size of the mountain, but it's the challenge that you're undergoing and the reason that you're there. I find joy going up my local 3,000 foot hill here where I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, um, with the same amount of joy as I get, you know, climbing other big mountains around the world. The New Hampshire mountains have nothing to apologize for. So you guys all just, you know, you know, you own your mountains, man, own your mountains and get rid of this inferiority complex. They are, they're the real deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've done a little bit of stuff out West and Pacific Northwest. So I, I don't have as much of an inferiority complex, but it, you know what happens is a lot of the people that have climbed out west they do like to give us a little yeah. ribbing, and we're we're sensitive. We're sensitive. So <laughs> now, if we're going to talk about snow slopes and the quality of snow, that's a whole different discussion. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I apologize. Well, you know, yeah, it makes us rugged. But uh, before we get into the mountaineering, one additional question is sort of a career in. Um, out the outdoor industry. So you were 30 years of Hewlett Packard. Um, and then, you know, you've transitioned into more of a focused career in mountaineering and outdoor industry. Can you talk a little bit about your progression through, uh, through this was your foot in both, both of these worlds for a while before you were able to transition over to, uh, really a focus on mountaineering. And can you, you have any advice for people that are starting off and, and want to do a career in the outdoor industry? You know, it's a really interesting uh, question because I believe today, and, and I'm 66 years old, so I've had a, you know, I've lived a good life, and I continue, I, I intend to continue living a good life. And yeah. uh, but today, I view a lot of these type of questions as an and. So, is it mountain climbing or work? And I view it as and. And I've always viewed my life as this equilateral triangle. That, you know, all, all three sides are equal and one side is your work, one side is your family, and one side is you. And I have strived to keep that balance all my life. Very rarely have I achieved it because, you know, situationally work takes over or family takes over. And occasionally later on in life, I figured out how to make time for myself. And I realized that taking time for myself wasn't being selfish, but it was keeping my own blade sharpened. So that I could be a better husband, I could be a better father, I could be a better employee, I could better be a better contributor to humanity. So I started off really being, I started off, look, I started off as a kid at age 11 delivering newspapers. Uh, bought my first car at 16 with my newspaper money, you know, uh, graduated from college, got a great job with HP, uh, you know, did a, a lot of different things, had five distinct careers within the same company, got a chance to go live for five years in Europe 
two years in Amsterdam, three years in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, but there was at some point in my, in that continuum, I discovered that I was not fulfilling some deep seated need I had within me. And that seed had been planted on a family vacation from Memphis, Tennessee to Colorado when I was 12. Came here just literally an hour from where I'm living right now. And I saw the Rocky Mountains and let my eye trace the mountain ridges against the sky, you know, the skyline. And I said to myself, one day I'm going to do that. And as a 12 year old back in 1968, you know, I, I was getting Boys Life magazine and Outdoor Life and Field and Stream and all these different magazines, which I don't even think exist today. And I would look at those pictures. I would see this guy in the back country with this giant backpack on. And I'm, I'm going to do that one day. But I really became focused on career. Um, and and that you know, paid off in lots of ways. You know, one way it paid off it allowed me to continue to uh, pay for my clients. Um, and I was able to, you know, to have a very good living and have a very good career. And I think make a very good contribution to the company. But at some point, I realized that I needed more in my life. And that's when I transitioned to, to climbing. And coincident was that was when my mother's Alzheimer's became apparent. We really didn't know it was happening until around the early 2000s. And, and then once we realized it, uh, we had to jump into action because it was, you know, she was already in the midst stages. And, um, and it wasn't long after that that she no longer recognized me, much less herself in a picture. So it's been a journey. Uh, advice to anybody starting off, I'd say, you know, um, life is all about balance. Um, I think early on, if I look back at it, I wish I would have spent more time um, sharpening my own blade on a personal level than spending that time on the career, because I think I could have done both at that time if I'd been a little more clever. Uh, but I got trapped. I'm, you know, I went from Memphis, Tennessee to Dallas, Texas. I was in Dallas, Texas in 1979, 22 years old making a good salary and that that's the recipe for going the wrong way (laughs) (laughs) and i and i kind of lacked some mentors at that time too to kind of help you know give me a little guardrail hey alan you're going a little you know you're drifting to the left you're drifting to the right you know come on get back in the center so i you know also i think having having good mentors in your life is it's very important other than your family and your parents so yeah, and we talk about this, you know, occasionally with people that come in that are sort of full-time focused on um, the outdoor industry. And I think that the common theme that I hear from people is that, like, it's not necessarily something that they started off with and grew a career like you would in right. you know, a traditional job. It's really like a lot of people actually were successful in their own careers and were able to basically earn enough of their own free time where they could focus on things that they you know, they like to do. So it's interesting. So you've made it so far. And, you know, I, I'm not sure saying I have a career in the outdoor industry as much as I'm a passionate amateur. Um, yeah, I yep. write for Outside Magazine. I've written for Nat Geo and uh, Rock and Ice and others. Um, but I don't consider myself to be a, a, an industry professional. Um, I'm, yep. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm honored enough to be able to be asked almost every year to write for Outside during the ever season because I've got that street cred to be able to do that. And, um, and, you know, and it's, it's fun. I enjoy doing it. Uh, I enjoy interacting at that level in the industry rather than, you know, a personal blog, which has a different level of professionalism, um, you know, that goes along with it. But the common denominator even there, guys, is that, um, that I think there's an integrity that comes along with any time that you 
do anything that goes into the public, whether it's a podcast like what you two do, uh, or it's a blog like I do, or I write for a magazine or a newspaper that that you have a, you have a responsibility to represent whatever the subject matter is uh, accurately, fairly balanced, and, and with integrity, uh, and to the best of your ability, uh, not taking sides and just really representing the facts and allowing the reader to to you know to glean their own conclusion. Yeah, yeah, and and getting into the uh, the most recent Everest season. So you've got some good YouTube content where you're updating people on sort yeah. of the the goings on at base camp and, and higher elevations. I watched a couple of your videos. You know, the early season it sounds like things were going pretty well. Things kind of took a turn for the the worst towards the end. There, can you give and and I'll point people to your more detailed summary of the 2023 season. But can you just give sort of our listeners a bit of a highlight about so sort the of goings on and the uh, the the overall season you know i hate to be a broken record but there's um um you know the headline is inexperienced clients led by unqualified guides inexperienced people with with people that shouldn't be guiding them that's the headline full stop and everything else uh, uh, you know trickles down from that this year was the the more people died on mount everest in 2023 than in history in a single season uh, 17 people lost their lives, uh, six Sherpas and um, 11 uh, foreigners. And in my opinion, um, after being you know part of this environment since the late 90s, that uh, eight of those were totally avoidable. Climbing Mount Everest, climbing, I don't care, climbing Mount Washington is dangerous. People lose their lives every single year, even in New Hampshire or anywhere, climbing these mountains. Yep. You know, that's part of the deal. And, and, you know, to the current events right now, tragically, five people apparently have just lost their lives in a submarine, you know, looking at the Titanic. So, you know, life, life is not without risk. Everest is not without risk. However, it is up to the individual to demonstrate personal responsibility and to make good choices. And often these days through the Internet and through slick marketing, uh, people are being seduced into with lower prices and the promise that their guide, quote unquote, guide has summited Everest 15 times. And if you get in trouble, uh, we have the resources to get you down. And by the way, you don't need to know anything because we're going to teach you everything you need to know on the mountain. And you can go I could I can give you links to websites where people, you know, advertise, you know, their climb that way. Um, and it's and it's just such a, a, a mis- disservice to people because um, people they don't know what they don't know about climbing these big mountains. And case in point was this year that we actually had people, and this is this is very very hard for for non climbers to understand, and even harder for experienced climbers to understand. There were people on Mount Everest this year that were left alone. There were people on Mount Everest this year that ran out of supplemental oxygen. There is no excuse for that. There were people on Mount Everest this year that will lose fingers and toes and perhaps hands and feet due to frostbite. There is no excuse for that in 2023. Um, and it comes back down to that the operators are marketing an experience at a low price and is drawing people in like a bug to a light. Is the the guide services that run operations on Mount Everest, I mean, my impression from watching, you know, years of documentaries and TV shows and the TLC, that there was a, there was a strong contingent of guide providers that were, you know, well-experienced, 
mountaineering expedition people that weren't just, you know, excellent. I feel like being an excellent climber and being a uh, running a guide operation may be slight, two slightly different skill sets that um, that are different. But I feel like there's been a transition to localize a lot of the services and a lot of the, the newer guide services are local to the area. And well, many of those people are probably very strong climbers individually maybe they don't have the knowledge of the logistics and you know the the actual what what it takes to to run a guide service yeah i mean that's that that, that's a salient point um someone will listen to what i just said and go alan you know come on you're you know you're throwing the local companies under the bus and you're blaming them for all of this you know when you say that uh you know that of the 17 people that died 11 were with low-cost operators and that's code for Nepali operators and that, you know, hey, Alan, you're being unfair doing that. Well, the facts speak for themselves. In 2019, there were 19 people who died across all the Himalayan 8,000 meter mountains in Nepal. And of those 19, roughly 17 were all with low cost operators. Uh, the statistics don't lie. So historically, you have to look at how the evolution of guiding occurred and not only on Everest, but across the Himalayas back in the early nineties, I think most people would give um, uh, hall and ball uh, credit with the venture consultants for uh, commercializing Everest. There were a couple of guys who did it before like David Bashir's and others, but uh, Gary Hall and Rob Hall, Gary Ball and Rob Hall really commercialized it by advertising on the back page of outside magazine for $65,000. You can, you too can go to the summit Mount Everest. You know, uh, but they didn't say no experience required. They had a long list of, of, of ways to vet their clients. Um, and, you know, and then two, 1996 came along. And, and, and in, my, in my humble opinion, uh, into thin air really mischaracterized a lot of the the um, the, uh, the experience that many people had. And, and to highlight that was Sandy Hill Pittman, which I think got a really, really raw deal in that book. But um, people did begin to start climbing. And they started climbing with these commercial operators. And so Russell Bryce with Himalayan Experience, uh, Guy Cotter with Himala um, Adventure Consultants, uh, Eric Simonson with uh, International Mountain Guides and on and on. Uh, these Western operators went to Nepal and they hired the Sherpas to guide uh, their clients. And so it became this, um, you know, the symbiotic relationship between the Western operators and the local operators. So that was in the late, that was in the mid to late nineties. So fast forward into the around 2013 to 2015, um, the Sherpas had now summited, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 times and they were quite savvy. And it was a whole new generation of, of people now that were now in their late twenties that, that some of them grew up as porters or as Sherpas. And they said, Hey, we don't need to, you know, we can start our own company. We don't need to depend upon Russell Bryce or Guy Cotter to, you know, to do this. So it became an yeah. and. And so they started their own company and because they cut out the middlemen. And so they no longer had to pay a permit price for their guides. Uh, so if you take over three Americans, you got to pay $11,000 for each one of those Americans, their travel and a salary. And the Nepali business model was completely different. So as a result, they began to compete on price. You know, the analogy I like to use here is this, this is the airline industry. This is business 101. Uh, you know, and so today, just like flying across the Pacific or Atlantic, you know, you can pay, well, I don't know, tens of thousands of dollars in flight first class, or you can pay hundreds or thousands and fly in the back of the airplane. You get there at the same time, but your experience may be totally different. And that's kind of where we've evolved today. Uh, Ten years ago, 80% of the people that summited Everest were guided by a, a non-Nepali company. 
This year, 2023, over 80% were guided by a local Nepali company. So this is not bad. And I want to be very clear on this because Nepal has every every um, reason, every right to monetize their natural resources, uh, including Mount Everest, the same way that Argentina has monetized Aconcagua, France and Italy and Switzerland have monetized uh, Mont Blanc and the Matterhorn. And by the way, the United States has monetized Mount Washington and uh, Mount Rainier and Mount Denali. So this is not unique in the world. And I think it's a mistake for people to say Nepal is making a mistake by monetizing it. I do think they are making some mistakes. We can get into that later if you like. Got it. Interesting. So proceed. You know, so you really need to do your homework on what guides you're signing up for if you're if you're doing this. Hundred percent. It's buyer beware. Hundred percent. And there's no. Can there's, you, there, it's not guiding. It's not like the Olympics, right? Or mountaineering. It's not like the Olympics. It's not a set of rules. And there's no oversight. You know, there's no oversight body like an FAA for airlines. There's no international oversight committee that says this is right, this is wrong. It is a free-for-all. Anybody can call themselves a guide. Now, in the United States, the National Park Service does have some requirements. So does Argentina and a couple other countries around the world. But Nepal, you and I, the three of us can go start a guide company tomorrow and put a website out. That was one of the questions I had, actually, what the vetting process was there is on the government side. Yeah, there is none. That's amazing. I mean, there's there's a perfunctory amount of, of, of uh, you know vetting, but not much. Before we move on to the next topic, um, was there any sense of exploitation uh, in terms of the guides, the guiding companies and the Sherpas? Did you get any sense of that in terms of? Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, the Nepali companies, one of the ways they've been able to compete on price is by um, either underpaying or not paying the Sherpa support at all under the guise that here, come and get a summit of Everest that'll pad your CV. And then that way, uh, when mm-hmm. you come back next year, we'll pay you a little bit more or we'll pay you at all. So certainly there gotcha. is exploitation of the labor market, and it's mostly been doing by mm-hmm. the local companies. The foreign companies, in my personal experience, since you know, I've been going there since 1997, what the companies I've been listing before, they are the ones that are paying way above market rates. And that when one of the Sherpas okay. uh, die tragically in the mountain, they will set up funds to cover the children's um, education going forward. That actually happened this year. There were three Sherpas who died on Everest in the ice fall, and they were climbing with a, a Nepali company called Imagine Nepal. And to his credit, Mingma Chi Sherpa, who runs that company, has set up a fund to fund uh, the children, you know, their education uh, in the future. So, you know, it's, it's just like anything else. Every industry has, a, you know, good actors and bad actors. And, um, and I think we have to avoid doing any type of broad brush that says, you know, this particular demographic or this culture, you know, they're good, they're bad, they're bad, they're good. So, you know, you really have to, as, as you said a moment ago, Mike, you really got to, you know, scratch on the, on the surface to figure out what's going on and do your homework. But also, so, um, also, I'll say one last quick thing that ever since the mountain people love to hate. And they love to hate it without an opinion, without a facts. They have lots of opinions, but they go off what they read in the mainstream press. And if it's, you know, it has, I've been watching this now for close to 25 years. And I only get calls from the Wall Street Journal or uh, BBC when people die on Everest. I was really busy this year. You know, and during a normal year, like last year when three people died, nobody called me. They only interested in, in, the, in the blood and gore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what the, that's what the mainstream public sees. 
Yeah, can you? Sure. Can, I'm curious about base camp. So I'm assuming early season, like there's probably a buzz and an energy and a good vibe at base camp, and then in years where you do have, you know, some some deaths or fatalities, I'm assuming that 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 there's a, a marked change at base camp. Can you talk a little bit about what that what's that environment like? Yeah, I mean, base camp is base camp is an interesting place. Um, you know, this year there was one outfitter out of Australia that uh, had a uh, massage service there. Um, you know, with with soft music and candlelight, and, and they had this Nepali masseuse that would give you a back rub and everything else, all on the up and up. You know, they had poster four four legged beds instead of sleeping on the ground. You know, and they had a uh, uh, cook they brought in from Europe. So you know, that's one side of the luxury uh, spectrum, and the other side is you, you know you're sleeping in a in a tent on the ground eating doll bot for two months. So you have everything in between. Uh, this year there were forty teams, which is about right, um, and it can be a team anywhere from you know, a handful of people up to the large Nepali companies can have. 50 to 75 to 100 clients. And so it becomes a really small city. So this year there were roughly 1,200 people at base camp. Hustle and bustle. Um, you know, you've got, you've got cooks and, and uh, cook help helpers going out, getting water, melting them on snow, uh, melting them on stoves. You hear the hiss of the snow going 24 hours a day. Yaks going through base camp with their bells clanging. Avalanches coming off the mm-hmm. Lola Pass nearby or up off of Mount um, uh, Pumori behind you in base camp. Cold at night, could be windy. Uh, you're hearing the creaking of the glacier underneath you as you sleep because Mount Everest base camp is on the lower part of the Kumbu uh, icefall, the glacier. Um, right. you know, it's a special place. The, the view and the, you know, the eye candy is just, just astounding. Also, it's really United Nations. I mean, you'll, this year, I think there were, I think it was like 78 different countries represented on Everest. So there's somebody from everywhere, you know, all the way from the one guy from, you know, Kakistan for the first time being there. He wants to summit for his country, you know, get that country pride. Uh, this year, China had 99 people. They had the most representative of, mm-hmm. on, Everest, on Everest climbing this year. So it's really a, it's, it's an eclectic, eclectic and electric environment. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a place that is, has got a lot of, lot of energy to it. Especially as you start getting closer to these um, the summit windows, mm-hmm. the um, the other popular peaks in the Himalayas. I'm assuming it's a completely different deal where you're talking about like maybe three, four expeditions going on at a time tops. Or am I wrong about that? Is it is there that same volume of people that are going up on other other summits in that area? Oh, and the other, you know, it depends upon the year. Um, last year, um, I, it was a really a, just a, a very unusual year of peak bagging. Uh, there were all of a sudden people began to say, hey, look, if I've invested all this time and money in training and logistics, if I'm going to go to over there to climb one 8,000 meter, you know, there's 14, eight, there's 14 mountains above 8,000 meters or 26,000 feet. Five, six of them are located in Nepal, one in Tibet and the rest in Pakistan. So people will say, hey, if I'm going to go over and climb one, why don't I try to climb two or three or four? Last year, it kind of got out of control with the peak bagging and people were going from Annapurna to Dalagiri, taking helicopters from base camp to base camp. And it just became just a, <laughs> it really became just a kind of out of control, you know, uh, central subway station. This year, it kind of calmed down a little bit. Um, but no, there's not the same number of people on the other mountains that there is. You know, the other 8,000 meters will have 
25, 30, maybe 50. That's a big year on these other mountains. Everest is still the, you know, the, the big kahuna. That seems to be the latest trend, though, is like these big conga lines of people. Have you noticed a big change in terms of crowding on trail? Yeah, again, that's another that's another one of those mainstream media uh, uh, clickbait things that that one picture that was right. taken in 2019. That's Exhibit A in the in the, uh, the prosecution that Mount Everest is out of control <laughs> and that anybody who climbs it is a rich, selfish lawyer just being drugged up by a Sherpa mm-hmm. short rope. You know, that's that's the narrative so that funny. everybody likes to talk about. And, you know, over cocktails, right, and, you know, right. the more you have to drink, the more you start talking about how horrible it is and stepping over dead bodies and all the trash up there. Some of that is true. However, sure. the picture that that went viral in 2019, that was a direct result of only three days of suitable low winds for people to go to the summit. This year, there were two mm-hmm. weeks that allowed people to go to the summit. There was a record number of permits that were issued this year. And to my knowledge, and I talked to lots of people that were on the mountain, nobody stood in a significant line this year. That year, 2019, was an anomaly. There's been a few other years in modern history, 2008 and 2016, that similar shorter windows have occurred. But in general, Mount Everest is a huge rock. It's a huge massif, and there's lots of chances for people to spread out, and the operators in general cooperate, and they all kind of figure out who's going up when. They say, you know what, we're going to wait. We're going to let everybody else go, and then we're going to tag at the very end of the season. So there's more cooperation than, than people give credit for, and those lines, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just irresponsible clickbait, in my opinion, by the, those that publish it without the proper context. Sure, makes sense. Now, we talk a lot, Alan, about like, you know, we deal with a lot of topics when it's like day hikers or or backpackers that are getting injured. And, you know, we we collect the data on any media reported incidents that happen in New Hampshire. So we have a pretty good idea of like what the main causes are. But we also talk about like the need for people to get out there and get some experience so that they get sort of a fine tune on their ability to know when trouble's brewing and they turn, they know when to turn around ahead of time so that they're avoiding those incidents. Can you talk a little bit about how, you get that because I feel like with with mountaineering and these eight thousand meter peaks, like you've invested so much time and energy and logistics and sacrifice. Like I would imagine, like the 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 tune in your head where you know you're in trouble and it's time to turn around must be very difficult to listen to, given the amount of um, investment you've made in the time to be there. You bet, you bet. And you know, I, I've got this consulting service called Summit Coach, where I talk to people that want to get into mountaineering, but either they need they need to get some help to you know flesh out all the noise out there and figure out who's the right guide and what they need to do. But the, my there's two things I'm always talking about. One of them. one is to go and be a self sufficient as you possibly can and and the second is that never be alone on the mountain or never be with someone who is you should never be the best person on your team (laughs) now that may sound weird you know because a lot of times you will be the best person on your team but what you what i'm trying to say here is that you don't know what you don't know especially on a mountain like everest or a k2 or a annapurna that you don't know what you don't know about how your body will perform at altitude until you've done it once and so, you know, I always ask people to go climb an 8,000 meter mountain like a Choyo U or a Manus Lu before attempting Everest in order to get that experience. 
there, there's no safe 8,000-meter mountain, but those are more attainable. They have less objective danger. Um, you know, there's, there's more um, outs if you get in trouble because you're at a relatively lower altitude. By that, I mean just a few hundred meters. But as you know, you guys know, altitude is exponential. So the difference between 7,500 and 8,000 meters is dramatically different and easier, quote unquote, than going from 8,500 meters to 8,850. So, um, yeah, getting that experience and knowing and knowing, beginning to recognize that, you know what, I'm not doing good. I'm not doing well. I'm starting to bonk. Um, you know, but the problem there is that if you start de- developing something like cerebral edema where your brain is swelling, you're going to lose the capacity to have that objectivity. Therefore, you need to be with somebody that's observing you and saying, you know what, you're stumbling around. What's your name? What day is this? You know, who's the who's the who's the prime minister of uh, of uh, France? Oh, well, maybe not all those questions, but some of them you would ask trying to figure out, you know, where your brain is at the moment. And, you know, doing the uh, uh, what is it called? The Lake Louise, you know, scale of, of trying to understand what your, you know, what your uh, uh, AMS, your acute mountain sickness um, symptoms are and then turning you around. Mm-hmm. And this is another problem is that the Western operators are very good at turning people around. The Nepali operators, not so much. They tend to say, look, you you have paid your money for me to get you a chance to get on the mountain and to go and, and, and I'm not going to turn you around. That's up to you. But often you got to protect a person for themselves. Yeah. And I know like India is more of a like a hierarchy culture. So like your title and your your standing matters. And I don't know. I don't know enough about Nepal to know, but I would assume maybe that that plays into it as well. Yeah. India is an interesting uh, cultural. I, I back in 2019, there were uh, really a very disproportionate number of Indian nationals that died on these 8000 meter mountains. Um, and so I did I did a really deep, deep, deep dive into it and talked to a lot of uh uh, climbing mountaineers uh, in um, uh, in India, experts, uh, cultural experts, and I came away with this headline that if you're and this this is a broad generalization, so please don't you know please don't think I'm picking on any one you know nationality or anything. But what I what they told me was that in India, if you go and you summit Mount Everest, you're going to come home a hero. Often you actually mm-hmm. get you get cash bonuses and even land and sometimes government of, uh, positions, jobs like in the police force or in the government. So if you summit, you're a hero. If you go and you die, you're a martyr. And so you're still honored by your family for generations. So in some ways, it doesn't matter <laughs> what the result is. It's still going to have in a kind of a strange way, a, a positive outcome. So as a result – a lot of the, especially the younger Indians are going in, willing to roll that dice and, to, you know, and to, and to take that risk, uh, feeling that either way, they're going to, you know, their their family will be okay with it, which obviously is, is horribly tragic, you know, when yeah. these families lose their, you know, especially the you know kids in their 20s on these mountains, especially when it can be avoided. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is crazy. So, Alan, I did want to... Um I wanted to dig into a little bit. So you climbed what is known as probably by reputation, the deadliest uh, 8,000 meter K2 when you were 58 years old. Can you talk about your calculation in, 
you know, deciding to go for K2 and a little bit of a, a sort of a highlight of that trip? Yeah, it, you know, I, all, as I said in the onset, that I have been incredibly fortunate and grateful to have these opportunities. And, and I've had some wonderful people in my life that have been able to, you know, to be mentors to me and, and help me learn the basics and to where I could be as self-sufficient as possible on these big mountains, given I'm not a professional mountaineer. But um, that said, I had summited Everest, and uh, that you know, I did in the seven summits that year in 2011. It was a great experience. I was climbing that year to raise money and awareness around Alzheimer's. Um, I called it the seven summits for Alzheimer's. So when I got finished with that, I came home. I was kind of like, okay, well, what now? So the next year, I went down to Peru, and I did Alpha Mayo, just with a beautifully fluted, steep uh, technical ice climb. And then the next year, I did Manaslu in Nepal, and it was on that climb that uh, Phil Crampton of Altitude Junkie said, hey, Alan, you did pretty well on Manaslu. You did great on Everest. Uh, you know, you're in great shape. If you ever thought about K2, now's the time to do it before you get too old. <laughs> and I'm like, Wow, Phil, I never even thought about it because, you know, I, I'm not, I can't go climb K2. I'm not that good. Also, hey, look, I'm 57 years old. I came home. I started thinking about it. And uh, a lot of things uh, just kind of fell into place for me. I, you know, the universe kind of said, you know, no, look, go try this. And I came up with this tagline that said, um, you know, climbing the world's hardest mountain to address the world's hardest disease. And arguably, both of those are not true. There's other mountains that are lower and harder than K2. And there's equally horribly tragic other diseases than Alzheimer's, you know, that affect people tragically. But, you know, for me, those two were linked. And by this time in my life, I developed what I call my passion and purpose, that my passion was mountain climbing and my purpose was uh, being an Alzheimer's advocate. So I thought, well, you know, why not? You know, and I have this firm philosophy in life, two things. One is that when windows up and up in your life, you have an obligation to jump through it. I mean, you may fall on your face, but you have an absolute obligation to jump through that window. And the second one is when people ask me, well, aren't you afraid of dying on these mountains? And I developed this answer a long time ago, and I stand by it today, decades later, is that if you live your life trying to avoid death, you're already dead. So I was not afraid. I've never been afraid of dying on the mountains. Um, and so K2 came into focus. Um, uh, a sponsor emerged out of nowhere that helped me to underwrite the cost. Um, I, uh, Garrett Madison, that he had never been there. He runs a, uh, at that time it's relatively new Madison Mountaineering. He'd never been there and he was looking for a handful of qualified people to go. So we kind of went as a ragtag group of not a, you know, not a technically commercial client, but still, you know, he's an outstanding guide in logistics. And I was able to get Connie Sherpa, whom I summited, uh, Kate, uh, Everest with to come along. And also Connie Rita Sherpa joined us. And currently Connie Rita, has the record for the most Everest summits at 29. <laughs> so this was a this was a world class <laughs> team, and you know we got there, and uh, I tell you what, it was one of the most uh, difficult, challenging uh, experiences of my life, where I almost lost my life, uh, but I kept going back to my purpose of why I was climbing, and that was my cause of Alzheimer's, and it allowed me to dig deep into go to a place in my essence I didn't even know existed. And I think it came full circle to understanding what my why was and pushing myself in a way that I'd never been able to do it because it wasn't about me. It was about my cause and about my purpose. That's intense. Wow. When you get to the summit of these 8,000 meter peaks, 
are you, and I mean, all I can really reference is like how I hike. And, you know, there's sometimes we'll hike a mountain and I'll look out and I'll say, wow, I can really reflect on the accomplishment and I yeah. want to freeze this moment and enjoy this view. And then there's times where I'm like, you know what, I, got, I logistically I'm thinking like, all right, I'm halfway. I got to get down. The, what's in your head when you're up there? Are you, are you stopping to really reflect or are you just sort of like, you know, I got halfway to go and there's, there's, that's a long way. And I've got to, I've got to think about getting down at this point you know a lot of it depends upon the mountain and, and how i'm feeling on um, on k2 i had developed pulmonary edema uh, unbeknownst to me and pulmonary is where you begin to develop fluid in your lungs so i was slowly suffocating and slowly unable to breathe even using supplemental oxygen and so i was um, mm. I, I was i had a out-of-body experience climbing that mountain but so when I got to the top up there, um, I was uh, I was in bad shape. But I wasn't. It wasn't apparent to my teammates how bad I was. But interestingly enough, um, I always take a satellite phone with me, and so I called my best friend Jim Davidson, who is my climbing partner here in Colorado. And Jim had climbed. Um, he climbed Everest, and he had to have lost one of his good climbing partners to a fatal accident on Rainier back in the early 90s. Jim knew me well enough that he could tell in my voice that something was wrong. And as we were hanging up, he said, you know, I'm just like going, yeah, oh, yeah I made a jump, but, you know, I, I'm really struggling. He said, Alan, Alan, yeah, Jim, Alan, yeah, Jim, double check everything. Okay, Jim, no, no, Alan, listen to me. Double check everything. Okay. All right, Jim. I got it. I got it. Well, his his words were really present because as I was going down, I got separated from the team. And it happens on these big mountains. You get separated. And I was climbing by myself and I was, you know, whatever, 27 and change, 1,000 feet. And at a rappel, uh, at an at a anchor, and I misrigged my rappel. I didn't put the bite of the rope through the carabiner. or I only put it through my figure eight. But thankfully, because I had the experience and was in my muscle memory, when I came up to the anchor, I took my safety and put it into a bite on the anchor. So when I leaned back to test it again for, you know, for, um, uh, you know, for muscle memory, I fell back. And if I had not put that safety in, I would not be here today. I would be listed as one mm-hmm. of those that's disappeared on K2. So I tell you that story. Now your question was, how do you feel when you're on the summit? So sometimes, like on Everest, because it was my fourth time to try it, and I finally made it, I, I became a, uh, a, you know, a bowl of mashed potatoes. I was just sobbing and thinking about my mom and thinking about, you know, I'd finally done it and feeling very happy. But also the pragmatic side of me is very task-oriented. I got to get down. Get calories, get water into me. Got to get down. I got only got so much oxygen on the Everest. Other mountains like an Amma de Blom, you know, which is around 20,000, 22,000 feet. Got up there. I looked around and took it all in. I could see Makalu and Everest for the first time, you know. Um, yeah, so it just all depends. But I think yeah. I've always tried to, to be a little bit zen when it comes to these climbs and living in the moment and giving myself permission to stop look around, look behind me to, you know, just to see where I am and just be very, very grateful for the opportunity to be where I was, whether it's a hundred meters below the summit on the summit or turned around just outside of base camp. 
Excellent. The uh, question I have for you. So we have a friend of the show, Martin Pisani, who's written a book around uh, basically the theme of the book is that hiking is a, is an activity where uh, it's sort of like the fountain of youth. It's one of these things that you can do that is sort of extends your health. And the goal yeah. is sort of to stay healthy and mobile and, and live a fulfilling life as long as you can, as long, you know, into your 90s or 100. Um can you sort of give your advice around, you know, what you've done to stay active into your, uh, you know, you said you're 66. So can, yeah, can you talk yeah. a little bit about for the, the listeners? You know, a lot of our listeners, I feel like are like I'm fi- I'm 51. We had a lot of listeners around my age that are sort of looking at getting older and thinking about like, you know, how do I maintain my health for the long term? Yeah, you know, <laughs> maybe this isn't the right expression, but, you know, it's kind of the use it or lose it. Um, you know, if, if you mm-hmm. if you stay at home on the couch True. eating Cheetos and drinking beer, you're not using it. You're using something, but probably not what's going to help you get outside and enjoy being in nature. You know, um, I get people that you know, they're in their <laughs> middle 40s and go, oh, man, I'd love to go climb like the Seven Summits or even Rainier or Denali or Everest. And make, you know, but I, I'm just too old. Hang on. Hang on. I didn't start climbing until I was 38, you know, and I summited Everest at 54, K2 at 58. Um, and yeah, I'm winding down now. And so I'll probably never go to another, I know I won't go and climb another 8,000 meter mountain, but I think self care being, you know, it's, and again, it goes back to what I call when you go climb like an Everest, I call it being an Everest shape. And I'm not talking about your, you know, biceps and your cardiovascular and your glutes. I'm talking about Everest shape and that is physical, mental, emotional, spiritual and by spiritual i mean why are you doing what you're doing and it comes full circle back i just mentioned why two or three times today that you know unless you know why you're doing what you're doing and by the way that does not mean going and climbing a mountain it could be that you want to have the best lawn in the neighborhood (laughs) you want your kids to grow up being the best balanced version of a person they can possibly be it could be that you want to help your partner learn to speak French. I don't care what your purpose, what your why is, but get up in the morning committed to doing your why to the very best of your ability. And that comes back to staying in good physical shape. And I think having for me, and I find that, that I'm not particularly unique here, that but having a big goal helps me stay focused on staying on that path. So a lot of people use mountaineering as that goal to, you know, to get up and to go work out an hour before they go to work and an hour afterwards to be a weekend warrior. Um, you know, uh, and again, it doesn't matter what it is, but just get committed to it and staying in physical shape. I think it's use it or lose it and, you know, get out there and enjoy nature. And it doesn't mean you have to go, you know, do laps on Washington every Saturday. <laughs> you know, how, how many how many four thousand meter or uh, foot peaks are in New Hampshire? It's 48, 48. Go get them. So, and we do find that that is that is sort of the transition point when people are getting focused on their health. Like they'll set that as the goal to say, "Let's do all those forty-eight. And that's part of what this show is about: is to give people that are doing that advice on staying safe when they when they do it. You know, you just the ten essentials. Tell people where you're going. Get a tracker. You know. Don't attempt, don't assume that search and rescue is going to come save your sorry butt when you get in trouble. You know, <laughs> be responsible, exactly. be self-sufficient, uh, <laughs> climb right. with people better than um, yourself. 
Yeah, and your your purpose. So all uh, your your personal experience with Alzheimer's is, you know, I, I read a little bit about it on your blog, and it's it's so it's it, it's a story that plays out over and over again, and Sadly. it is sort of a long, lonely road for people. Um, you know, not only those suffering with Alzheimer's, but the family and the support that you get. And it's it's very difficult, I think, for people that haven't gone through it or are not going through it to sort of understand just how lonely and difficult that road can be for the families. But can, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, for anybody that is listening to this show that's going through this journey right yeah, now? Yeah. Um, and I'm starting to see it more and more as I'm getting into my 50s, you know, right. my friend's parents are getting to be that age and uh can, can you talk a little bit about um you know or reflect a little bit about like how um how impactful this is to families well thank you for this that question thank you very very much for it because my again my my purpose in life is not being a mountain climber but trying to advocate uh, on behalf of people that can't advocate for themselves you know um my mom um she was the memory keeper in our family she had nine brothers and sisters um five of her sisters also died from alzheimer's um so you know who knows if i'll get it i've been tested i don't have the the uh, the, the obvious genes for it but that doesn't mean i won't get it so i'm uh, cherishing every day of my life those people that are in caregiver situations especially family members um i call you the silent victim because often you give up your job, you mortgage the house in order to keep your loved one at home as long as possible until it just physically uh, they can't do it anymore. But you are the silent victim. And most importantly is please know that you're not alone. There are many resources out there. The Alzheimer's Association does yeoman's work in having lots of community organizations that runs classes on how to be a caregiver. Um, how to deal with depression. Depression amongst caregivers for people with Alzheimer's is significantly higher than in the general public. Um, you know, it's one of those diseases that for the, my mom, I, she was, she, she was just in this moment of Zen for like the last two or three years. She was happy as a clam. It didn't matter what was going on. And I could always get her to laugh and we could joke and, you know, and I had a great time with her and she had no idea who I was towards the end. Um, but for me, I would get in the car and just, and just tears would just flow after leaving here because it became obvious that, um, the best place for her was in a facility. I was in Colorado. She was in Tennessee. She had a great church group around there to support her, her family. Most of her family were still living at that point. So that was the right thing to do at that time. Uh, but trying to keep your loved one at home as long as possible is often what they prefer, even though there'll become a point where they don't really understand what's going on. And maybe the best thing for you as a caregiver is to get help. You know, that's the other thing, too, is just don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, you know, I think that's something in our society, especially amongst men, that we think that, you know, we're supposed to carry these burdens all ourselves. And um, that's not true. That's never been true. It never will be true. Um, you know, and if you're a single, uh, you're single, a child of a, an, a parent with Alzheimer's, then there's other people that you can get to help. Hopefully family members will step in. But, you know, in my case, my brother and I became estranged over my, my mother's Alzheimer's and we haven't spoken in 13 years. It rips families apart. Um, it's, it's a devastating experience all the way across. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that today that, the funding for research has increased to close to $3 billion through the National Institutes of Health. 
Uh, Eli Lilly just announced a phase three clinical trial result, which looks very promising. Uh, it still has a long way to go to being, you know, um, uh, proven safe for the, you know, the general population. But, you know, we're making progress. And I think we're also learning that, um, that Alzheimer's is very similar to like heart disease. Uh, it begins to develop 20 to 30 years before you become symptomatic. And that's a real big aha in understanding how to prevent this for future generations. And finally, you know, when I saw my mom go through this, I made a vow to her, which uh, became in full circle when I was on K2. And that was that I was not going to let Ida Arnett's death from Alzheimer's become just another number on a long list of people taken by this disease. And I was going to do everything I could to honor her life, raise awareness and raise money for this disease. And that's become my life purpose since 2009. Well, that's inspiring. And we have uh, we partnered with the Alzheimer's Association for their longest day fundraiser here Fantastic. in New Hampshire. So they do a they do a fundraiser where, uh, matter of fact, it's, um, you know, they they will um, basically have teams that will hike the 4000 footers or any other mountains. Last weekend was their yep. their official date, but we had another event on uh, on June 10th. So um, we'll, we always include that in our show notes, but is there anything that you want us to, um, or anything you want to highlight to our listeners around fundraising or how they can contribute, um, to you for Alzheimer's? No, so, so I have been, I've, um, had a very high and thick firewall ever since I started this is that if anybody wants to give me money, I redirect it to go to one of the nonprofits. I never accept anybody's donation because I don't want anybody to think I'm my, you're paying for my clients. I want their hard-earned yep. money to go to find a cure for this disease. I'll figure out how to pay for my own clients. So the Cure Alzheimer's Fund out of Wesley Mass near Boston, uh, they are yep. one of the they are one of the top world-class research organizations. The Cure Alzheimer's Fund, um, and they 100% of your donations goes directly to research because all of their overhead is underwritten by um, some families, including the owner of the Boston Red Sox. White Sox? Red Sox. <laughs> Red Sox. Red Sox. <laughs> How dare you, Alan? How dare you? <laughs> I beg forgiveness. I beg forgiveness. That's great. So the Cure Alzheimer's Fund is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Of course, the Alzheimer's Association, they're the largest um, private funder of research. Us Against Alzheimer's is another organization which does great work in helping to affect uh, public policy. And then um, the Caregivers Association is another one that supports caregivers out there. So I've got all those on my website. If you go to you know alanarnett.com and click on Alzheimer's, I've got a list of all these places where the donations with links to go to, to them. Again, nothing ever to me. And my final comment here is that um, any, any amount that's meaningful to you will be meaningful to the community. Don't think that $10, it has to be some number with lots of zeros. Any number that's significant to you will make a difference. So thank you for everybody for even considering it. Well, well, thank you so much for joining us, Alan. 55 minutes. You said it was going to be five hours. and We, we came in under an hour. <laughs> well, when, you, when I saw this list, I'm going, oh, my gosh, we could talk for days. <laughs> Did you say so? You said you're done with the big eight uh, eight eight thousand meter stuff. You're you're going to stick a little lower. Yeah, yeah. I you know I can I can spend the rest of my life climbing here in Colorado and not knock out. You know we've got I don't know what it is seven or eight hundred mountains that are above ten thousand feet. So I can spend the rest of my life just going up and down these guys. 
Well, the next time you come to New Hampshire, like the, forget about that guy that brought you up there in December in a blizzard. Like we'll, we're going to take you up on a bluebird day when it's nice and warm. Like that's not a friend. That's what's he doing to you? Can we we got to get you up there and snow. You have hot cocoa and drive down. Yeah, yeah, we could do that too. We could do that. So that would be. But, uh, but again, that's funny. Yeah, Alan, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we will uh, we'll include all the details in the show notes. And um, it's been great talking to you. Thank you both very much. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been fun. All right, stop. So we got a chance to talk to Alan. What do you think? What an impressive uh, individual. So impressed with his resume. Amazing. Incredible. Yeah, I was nervous. I thought I was going to screw that one up, but I think it it went well. No, yeah, you did fantastic. I mean, I had so many questions. It was really fascinating getting his insight on the media presentation of all these higher summits and all the shenanigans that um, we think are going on, which may not be going on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was fascinating and I'd love to get him back on again in the future. So we'll have to see like next time, maybe we can do a collaboration with, uh, with the Alzheimer's and longest day hike or something and get him back on. Cause it was, it was really fascinating. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. We'll definitely have him back. It was really great. Yeah. Awesome. So, uh, we have another sponsor here, Stomp. Yeah, let's go. So Valcluse gear. Do you have a sweat problem, Mike? I don't know. Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, Sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Valcluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, sizes 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilation ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over three ounces. Whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. Visit valclusegear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER, S-L-A-S-R, to enjoy a $5 discount plus... You let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. Thanks, Bryce and Valkluse. Great stuff. Yeah, I used to be sweaty. I'm not anymore now that I use the, the backpack frame. <laughs> That's right. Smart man. So, um, search and rescue news. So we're going to wrap up the show here with search and rescue news. So first article is a national story. This is a, uh, this is a rough one. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. This one, uh, 4,000 foot fall to, uh, to this gentleman's death. So man falls more than 4,000 feet from Grand Canyon skywalk to his death. Um, so they're investigating the cause here of, uh, of what happened. But this was a 33-year-old gentleman who plummeted from the Grand Canyon Skywalk attraction, which is a, uh, it's just basically like this walkway that extends out over the Grand Canyon. And I think the, 
my understanding of this here, so I've been out to the Grand Canyon. I did not go down to this section because it's it's basically farther down. It's run by like one of the local tribes, and I have no interest in going over a glass walkway to be hovering over thousands of feet anyway. So assumption risk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'd be crawling on that thing, but. Um, I don't know, Stomp, they're investigating if you're going to put odds, you know, a selfie disaster or <laughs> a, a, a suicide. I don't know what which, which uh, you would pick. I'm guessing a selfie fail. Might have to do a poll on this one. Yeah, yeah, we'll Who see. Knows? But it's we'll awful. See. When I first saw the headline, I was thinking, what? What mountain or location offers a 4,000 foot drop? But then I read it and like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it's a little deceiving because it's like you, when you read that, you like you think in terms of like, okay, it's 4,000 feet of a free fall. And matter of fact, my daughter, who's a sicko, was like doing the math on how long it would it would actually take to reach the ground from 4,000 feet. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like 15 seconds or something like that. I don't know. She was doing, she had a calculator or something. Yeah. Um, but that's a lot of time to sort of reflect on your life. But the reality is, is that really you'll hit the side of the canyon at around 1,000 feet. And then from there, it's just basically going down along the wall of the canyon at a pretty steep angle mm-hmm. to eventually get to the bottom. So you're, you actually hit the side of the canyon a lot earlier, which is, I mean, I don't think that's any help, but it's yeah. just, I figured yeah. I'd throw that out there. Interesting. Well, yep. unusual story. But yeah. Yeah. Hey, going local for some more unusual stuff. Yeah, Stomp. So I actually just added this a second ago because we didn't have it on here. But mm-hmm. uh, there's a the Forest Service is declaring an incident um, because there is this gathering. I never heard of these dirty hippies before, so I don't know what's going on here. But apparently, there's this group called the Rainbow Family that's been in existence since like the 1970s. And um, they have this thing where they get together. They call it the gathering. And um, they have small regional ones. And then they have the national one. And unfortunately, they've picked New Hampshire as the location for the national gathering this year. So they're expecting 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. And they're, they've selected a campsite that is um, off a of York Pond Road, which is basically the road that gets you to Cabot. Right. They said that the site that they've selected is probably big enough to fit about 60 people comfortably in a camping situation. That's crazy. And they're going to have 5,000 people there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And they, yeah. they're they doing this without a permit or anything. They're just... Yep, they're, so it's... Yeah, the group has it. no leadership. There's no one to sign a permit. They don't believe in anybody. They don't believe in hierarchy anyway, so... Yeah. I guess they dig latrines for um, human waste. There's kids there. You know, there's been incidents where like people have been killed at these things, but they're also like, you know, peace loving hippies. So who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Uh, My biggest concern is, you know, fire. I just don't want to see a portion of the uh, forest burned down from negligence. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I I don't know. I'm actually thinking about, so this is going from July 1st to July 7th. I don't encourage anyone to go to this thing, but. I'm hearing that they're already showing up. Oh yeah. They're already showing up. Oh, for sure. I may, for the sake of the show, I may, if I'm going to be up there, I may, well, (laughs) I may go check it out. I'm thinking about like, cause I was like, I want to go hike Percy Peak anyway. So maybe if I go hit Percy Peaks and then head over there, I can check it out and see what's going on and I'll I'll do a field 
research project. So we'll see what happens. But I, mm. I don't know. I'm not, I don't like crowds, and I definitely am not going to want to be in a field full of people pooping in latrines. You know what you should do is like put on like an Obi Wan Kenobi robe and put a hood up and just roam around and see if anybody notices you. What what would you suggest I do? Because I feel like because I feel like your dad went to Woodstock and stuff. So what would I? How would I dress up to? Fi- so I'm definitely gonna go hiking first and get a little dirt on me. But like, how, what would I? Dre- how would I dress to like fit in in a hippie festival? I would I would go for I don't know I don't want to get myself in trouble. I, I you know it's okay. like I, I saw a couple of news clippings and um, they were really disheveled. Uh, they, the the images that they showed and you know just torn old ratty looking clothes and i don't know if like you know mur was using some stock photo or not but that's what they showed on the the footage so i really don't know i don't know i don't know who's showing up for this this is the first time i've heard of this and i'm 53 years old I remember this. I remember you texting me and you were like, how are we like in our fifties and we've never heard of this before? <laughs> I know it's the craziest thing, yeah. but I would start with the, uh, the Obi-Wan cape, you know, just do something okay. like that. All right. Or, yeah. And put dirt in your face. Like you mentioned. We'll see. So stand by. I may have a good story for people <laughs> when we come back on the 14th or whatever. Um, oh, all right, stop. It? So first, uh, we got a couple of water situations here. So geez, stay, yeah, stay on, safe on the water people. One on the Pemi and um, one on the Saco. I mean, we're like half a degree away from 60 degrees, which is a safer temp, but it's cold out there. So these are interesting. You don't see too many of these stories. Yeah. Yeah, this is interesting. So, kayakers safe after being rescued from the Pemi in Thornton. Mm-hmm. So, uh, camped in Thornton Fire Rescue crews were called to the river at 1230 on a Thursday following a report that a woman had fallen out of her kayak and was clinging to a tree. So, um, the rapids were moving quickly and they said that she was starting to lose consciousness. So, lucky she That's got terrifying. there. Rescue swimmers reached the kayaker and brought her to shore hypothermia. Um, she declined the ambulance transport. So she came back. I'm assuming they gave her hot liquids and got her in some dry clothes and everything. She was wearing a life jacket, but uh, the river's still running hot. I mean, it's been raining. It is still, it's running you know, hot, but it's, it's, it's cold as hell. I mean, yes, I'm not sure if this person was you know, able to swim or what, but it's a very interesting story. Thank God for that life jacket. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then this next one, Saco River and Bartlett. Again, that's another area where the Saco can run hot. It's or it's still pretty early in the season for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need that hot weather to like get the water to dissipate so that it 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 sort of gets a little bit lower. But um, Thompson and his son had launched their kayaks in the Saco River. So across from Diana's Bath in that area down there, like that's a lot of people kind of pull off the road on West Side Road and hop in there. So it's a pretty common place. But they were going to paddle downstream. But after putting in um, 69-year-old guy and his son, um, both capsized their kayaks in a rough section of the river. The son made it back to his kayak, but the older gentleman lost his kayak and swam to shore. He was seen around 2 p.m. walking on the shore to the towards the direction of Route 16. Mm-hmm. Um, members of North Conway Fire and Police, Center Conway Fire and, uh, and Fish and Game, they had to do a search for this guy. Eventually, they found him at 11 p.m. using a drone operated by Center Conway Fire. They located a heat source on, on an island in the river on the Bartlett side, and they wow. were able to access the island with a rubber rescue boat and save the guy. So, you know 
quite an adventure. <sighs> yep. <laughs> Just shocked. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, I don't know. It's the summer solstice, what, yesterday? Um, this is going to be a cold, wet summer. I don't know. I think we'll have yeah, cold it, water for another couple weeks. Yeah, it's ramping up that way right now. But um, I'm hoping that like we have this like cold, rainy June and it frees us up to get into like a ridiculous heat wave of July. That'd be nice. Yeah, Yeah. we shall see. See how it goes. But I'm looking at my local weather here and you're right. It's like nothing but rain from Saturday to Thursday next week. Yeah, in half an inch a day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, not that much down here in Massachusetts, but it's still... All right, uh, next one. Injured hiker carried off Mount Kearsar. So mm-hmm. this happened on Friday, June 16th, uh, around 1.45 in the afternoon. Um, CO conservation officers were notified of an injured hiker on the Barlow Trail of Mount Kearsar. So that's one of the main trails up there. Mm-hmm. 71-year-old gentleman from Mass um, suffered non-life-threatening injuries after slipping on wet rocks as he descended the trail. So he's coming down. Uh, rescue crews crews carried the gentleman off the mountain and arrived at the trailhead around 4 p.m. So that's not a bad place to get in trouble. I mean, you're pretty close to, it's not a long trail and it's, you're pretty close to like the parking lot and there's a lot of people around. So. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. There's so many Kearsages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is the one down in Wilmot. So this yeah, is the gotcha. Southern Kearsage. So, uh, but the gentleman was um, taken by family members to have his injury um, evaluated. Next one here is on uh, same June 16th. I think that was Friday. Bartlett Jackson Ambulance and the various Jackson and Bartlett and Lakes Region and Androscog and SAR teams and fishing game responded to Iron Mountain for a hiker reportedly experiencing a medical condition. Mm-hmm. So first responders located this hiker from Hampton, New Hampshire, about a half a mile from the summit. So he was in there yep. um, of Iron Mountain on the Iron Mountain Trail. So this gentleman had suffered a medical emergency. However, after rest, he was able to walk with assistance to the trailhead. Uh, heavy rain and thunderstorms during this rescue operation. So a call came in at 11 a.m. He was having a medical issue. Um, that's always a little bit scary. You never know what's going on there, if there's AFib or whatever. Um, didn't give any details on it, but you know you want to be careful if you're not feeling great. Rescue has reached a trailhead at approximately 2.30 to get the gentleman back. So it sounds like he was able to walk under his own power. Mm-hmm. So, um, Yeah. That's all that was there on that one, but probably just a little bit of a scary moment for the guy. Mm, yeah, especially with the uh, weather. Yeah, yeah. And then um, this next one here is a uh, on the Appalachian Trail, Mount Cube. So on June 15th, injured hiker came in um, near the summit of Mount Cube. So this is a 48-year-old woman has sustained an injury after falling on wet, slippery rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, her daughter was with her, called for help, but thought they could turn around and walk slowly back down the trail. Um, they were directed to hike to the closest road. Thanks to a landowner, rescue, and fire department personnel from that region, um, were able to drive to within a mile and a half of the injured hiker. Um, the hiker met rescue personnel and was able to make it the entire distance under her own power. So um, 
The lady was from North Carolina. She was transported to Upper Valley, um, or to Dartmouth Health by Upper Valley Ambulance and treated for injuries. She was well-prepared and an experienced hiker who was hiking the Appalachian Trail with her daughter. So they started in Virginia, so probably doing a flip-flop. But um, there's been a number of through-hikers been injured this year Mm -hmm. already. Right, right. So... That's uh, that's it. So we are in the season stomp. It's it's slippery it's rocks. Yeah, it's getting slippery busier. Slippery rocks, um, for sure. Um, I don't know what to expect over the next several days with the rain, but be careful out there. Uh, be careful for the thunder. This weekend's going to be wild. Yeah, people are going to want to get out there for sure. And um, I, I just it happened to me. Like I slipped on a rock in a, in an instant, and I'm I'm down and out for a month now. Yeah crazy and by yeah. the way there's nothing you can do for your toe if, if it was fractured this, you can't cast it you can't do anything you just have to let it uh, heal on its own time so no, that's good to hear yeah. it's good to hear there's no, I, that's what I figured the yeah. whole time I'm like my wife was like oh, go to the doctor and I was like ah, what are they going to tell me to do oh, yeah. you know, what are they going to yeah. do nothing splinted yeah. at the worst um, but yeah Hey, one thing I will tell the listeners, um, I actually, before we end, I did do a little bit of a hike. My my wife and um, the the family was up, we were up in Maine and we went to North Conway and we did the new North Conway like trail that's off behind Walmart. So a couple of weeks before we had done the uh, Redstone Quarry, which is right there, but there's also a walking path that takes you from Walmart and North Conway. Mm-hmm. up to Mount Cranmore. So it's a three mile trail. So six miles out and back. I did about a mile. Everybody else did three miles because I was walking so slow. But um, <laughs> it's a pretty cool trail. So if you were in North Conway and you've got somebody that's not a hiker, but they want to go for a walk, like it's an awesome walking trail. It goes along North South Road. Parking lot is behind Walmart. Definitely recommend checking it out. You can go to Redstone Quarry, explore over there and then go for a walk. Like great, great, great way to kill a day. If you got bikes and you want to go like ride your bike to Cranmore and then go to downtown North Conway. You don't want to deal with the parking. Park at Walmart, grab your bikes, hit that trail, and then you can get all the way into downtown North Conway without having to deal with any traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's my free that tip of the week stomp. Yeah. They, oh, speaking of tips, tips of the week, uh, we yeah. do have a new sponsor um, coming up soon. It's going to be a weekly hiking tip by the hiking buddies. Uh, so that's in the works. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Super cool. Awesome. Yeah. And we should actually close out the show just to give um, our thoughts and prayers to our good friend, Lynn Sweezy. So Absolutely. Lynn does so much stuff behind the, sh- behind the scenes and like she's, she's involved in like helping out the hiking buddies and Alzheimer's and she does so does much and she's such a great person and yeah. her, her family suffered a loss uh, this week. So our thoughts and prayers are with you, Lynn. And yeah, uh, sure. you know, we hope um, we give you strength this week. Uh, it's going to be a tough one for you, but we're thinking of you. Yep. No doubt about it. All right, stop. I'll see you in two weeks. Two weeks, kid. Get some rest and uh, take care of that toe. Excellent. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. 
That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Nealon, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all. 